Memory is subjective and time is a flat circle. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and I have nothing interesting to say uh, today. We're recording in the morning rather than in the evening, so I've got a nice cup of tea next to me. Uh, me, Joining me, as always, is my co-host... Martha Sullivan, who's now very, very jealous of your tea... Uh, cause I'm nursing a little bit of a, little bit of a throat issue mm-hmm. this week, so I apologize to our listeners if I sound not a, if I if I sound poorly this episode. <laughs> you need to go get yourself some tea, some uh, like green tea with honey in it. I don't know if I have any. It's all you know. It's all at work. I oh, keep sure. all my tea at work. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, joining us this week as our third chair is returning friend of the podcast and my wife, my wife, uh, Maren. My wife. Hi. Uh, Yay! The caffeine is slowly, slowly seeping into me, so hello. Welcome back. Good morning. Good morning, especially to my coffee. We're so happy to have you here. Yes. Um, today we're going to be talking about nostalgia, um, but before we do that, we're going to share with you, as always, what we have currently stuck in our heads this week. Um, this is just whatever piece of pop culture we want to be talking about. Um, let's start with Marin. All right. Um, so, um, through various circumstances, I have worked... A lot more than typical this week, so I haven't gotten a chance to, but I've been watching lots of trailers and clips for the second season of Netflix's Medici Masters of Florence that just dropped, so that is probably going to be how I spend the rest of my day. Um, So, but yeah, as I was waking myself up this morning, I was watching a bunch of YouTube clips of it and getting excited. So tell me about this show, because I'm fascinated by the Medici family, but I always feel like the shows that they make about them are not as salacious as I want them to be. Oh, <laughs> um, then this might not be for you. It's not like the Borgias, okay. like it's not like, you know, there's not like that level of salaciousness, um, but mm-hmm. it's really good. The first season came out like, I want to say two years ago, um, and starred pretty pretty rob stark um as cosimo de medici or de medici um and this season it's a relatively young actor that i haven't really heard of um who's playing lorenzo um it does also feature uh sean bean i'm not sure if he dies yet he's contractually obligated to die (laughs) Um, and it also well, features the lead guy from Merlin, um, who I feel like should be in more things, because um, Merlin is just so good, and I want to see him in more things. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, they, I think it, like, balances, like, I mean, they are definitely the heroes. It is definitely more Game of Thrones than the Tudors. Um, 
in terms of just, like, a lot of politicking. Like, it reminds me a lot of season one of Game of Thrones, actually. Um, okay. At least the first season did. Yeah, there's just, like, a lot of politicking, a lot of plotting, um, and a lot of, you know, like, ah, we have these enemies coming to destroy us. How will we take them down? Uh... Martha, what is your stuck in your head? Okay, so I'm going to take you guys on a journey because mine is a little bit more of a concept. Mm-hmm, great. I was watching I was watching the trailer for Jordan Peele's mm-hmm. new movie, Us, the other day, which I'm very excited for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it occurred to me that a lot of the imagery used in the trailer reminded me very strongly of The Shining, which we watched recently for an episode of this podcast. Not watched, read. Um, But anyway, reminded me a lot of Kubrick's The Shining, which got me thinking, wouldn't it be rad if Jordan Peele directed a Stephen King adaptation? Ooh. Ooh. Right? So then I was looking at different lists of all of King's works, trying to decide what I thought would be a good fit for him. And I realized that I have some pretty egregious gaps in my Stephen King oeuvre mm-hmm. so now i'm reading those um i just finished thinner which was very strange <laughs> and i i have very conflicting feelings about it because it is pretty racist um mm. and i just started the stand which i have never read before oh really um the only either. copy the only copy you can get as an ebook through my library is the restored uncut original <laughs> that is 1100 pages long Wait, what? but it's also like one of his seminal works yeah like the stand and it are sort of like his two like enormously fat tomes that are also like seminal mm. so anyway there was the original version, and then at some point someone decided it was a good idea to go in and re-add all of the stuff that had been cut during the editing process, which oh. is never a good idea. <laughs> never a good I'm, taking a very firm, I'm taking a very firm stance on this. I don't care for it. I don't care for director cuts in movies. There's a reason that that sh- stuff gets left on the editing room floor. Um, but yeah, so now I'm staring down the barrel of, a, of an 1,100-page book. If anyone out there... Jeez. has an original version of this novel that they would like to lend me, I would prefer to borrow it. <laughs> I read, I reread The Stand a couple years ago um, and enjoyed it, but it also, like, I like Stephen King, but he has definite writing tics that drive me crazy, and The Stand, like, exemplifies all of them. Oh, like what? Um, the way he writes dialogue drives me up the wall. Um, I It's... It's pre-Tarantino, Tarantino-esque. Those um, sure are some words you just said. <laughs> well, it's like, it always, it, like his, his dialogue always feels, to me, heightened in a way that's, like, edgy but not realistic. Which is very, like, Tarantino-y. Um, but obviously he was doing it before that. Um, yeah. Anyway, we should have an entire Stephen King episode, because I think there's a lot to dredge up on that one, but we won't talk about it too much here. We would have to, I think we would have to decide that one, like, a month out (laughs) to give anyone... Right? That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. His books are not short. (laughs) 
Um, well, speaking of not short books, uh, what I have stuck in my head this week is, um, I and also speaking of egregious gaps in cultural knowledge, I had never read any of Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time series, which is a massive fantasy series. Um, it's 14 books long. Each book is like 500 pages, one of those situations. Um, he died before he finished it, and... Brendan Sanderson, I think, is the name of the guy who came in and wrote the last couple books of the series. Um, I've just started listening to it on audiobook. Uh, started about a month ago, and I'm three books in. Um, it, it's incredibly high fantasy. Uh, if that's your bag, you'll enjoy it. If it's not your bag, you will not enjoy it. Um, but it's the kind of thing where because it was so massive, it was intimidating for me to start. So I figured, like... Screw it. I'll just start listening to it on audiobook and uh, see if I like it or not. Um, it has a lot of fantasy tropes, which are frustrating at times, and the main characters can be frustrating at times, but um, the world is outrageously built up, um, and I'm all in on that kind of stuff. I have never read these, and I think that I have decided that I don't need to. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, that's... It's too much. That's, it's too yeah. much. Yeah, like I said, like, the length is intimidating. If you're not ready to get all in, then don't. Um, that being said, uh, I'm furious that Amazon is spending a billion dollars to remake Lord of the Rings when they could be spending a billion dollars <clears throat> to make something like this or literally any other fantasy property. Literally anything else. Like, grab the Silmarillion. That's great. Uh, Did you... Did you, were you reading N.K. Jemisin's stuff? Yes, I just finished reading all her stuff. And yeah, 100,000 Kingdoms. Yeah. Boom. Mm-hmm. And, like, that all could, like, a billion dollars would go very far there. So, yeah. Yeah, agree. Hard agree. Yep. <laughs> yeah, also would probably get them the Game of Thrones-sized audience they are looking for. Yeah. Like... People are not enthusiastic about another Lord of the Rings in the way they would be. Yeah. About. And I will be honest, probably not everyone will be as enthusiastic about a Silmarillion as you, Pete, but <laughs> come on, people. Yeah. Well, aren't there weird things happening with the rights to the Silmarillion? Oh, yes. I, I think that's why they can't do any of that. Christopher Tolkien yeah. and the Tolkien estate have the right, like, they sold the rights to The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings but not any of the other um, stuff. Because that was, they wanted to bring in a lot of the Silmarillion stuff into The Hobbit because for some reason they couldn't just make one movie. Yeah. And I think they were limited to what shows up in the appendices of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, funny story, uh, Tolkien's papers are housed in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Um, they are housed at Marquette University. Uh, because Marquette was the first one to ask. And so they just got sent over to Milwaukee. Um, so I, I had a chance to meet with um, a you know, staff member in the archives and talk about, like, the Tolkien papers. And apparently, in part because, like, the rights are, they have, like, extremely rigid, which, is, I mean, I think it's very typical for an archive. But, yeah, because of all of the copyright, they have to be, like, very careful about, like, what people can copy and what people can, like, you know, ensuring fair use and all this stuff. It was really interesting. 
When did those works end in the end up in the public domain? Um, the Hobbit would probably. be in the public domain in like twenty years. I was going to say probably after we're all dead because yeah. of Mickey Mouse, but still. Yeah, like <laughs> assuming that the copyright law isn't changed again, uh, the Hobbit I think is entering in fifteen to twenty years. That'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll be talking about nostalgia. nostalgia in pop culture. Um, now, there was a lot of sort of back and forth on our end about what exactly this was going to look like because we don't want it to be things that we are necessarily nostalgic about. Uh, we've done an episode about that. It's in our archives. Go back and listen to it. Um, instead, we want to look at how media and pop culture grapples with nostalgia, how it's presented, um, and the questions that it's raised. So we're going to be looking at is nostalgia healthy in these three works, um, does it go challenged or unchallenged? Um, how do they reflect real life attitudes about that nostalgia? And who does the nostalgia serve? We're doing this through the lens of um, two movies and an album, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, Pleasantville, and The Hold Steady's Boys and Girls in America. And we're going to start with, um, we're going to go basically in chronological order. So we'll start with Marin's homework assignment, Meet Me in St. Louis. All right. Um, so Meet Me in St. Louis uh, is a year in the life of the Smith family of, you guessed it, St. Louis. Um, so it goes through, um, it's set in 1903 to 1904 in the buildup to the 1904's World's Fair in St. Louis. Um, there's not that much of a plot more than, uh, it's just a year in the life of this family, the kooky adventures the kids get up to. Um, the main through line is that one of the daughters, played by Judy Garland, um, falls in love with the boy who moves next door. Um, it was one of the first, and it was one of the first movies made by the Arthur Freed unit, um, who in the history of movie musicals is incredibly important. Um, and it was one, of, it was like a box office smash, um, at the time. Um, and it, it's important to note that it was made in 1944. So it was made like right during World War II. Um, but yeah, it remains a, a classic of the movie musical genre. Um, lots of um songs that you know were very popular and some that continue to be it's where the song have yourself a merry little christmas comes from um but yeah some other famous musical numbers you know meet me in st louis itself um the trolley song is one of judy garland's most famous um so yeah it's a it's a classic what made you think of this movie in relation to the theme of nostalgia or vice versa if you wanted if you picked the movie and then 
picked the topic? Um, yeah, definitely picked the movie before the topic, um, mostly because I was jonesing to watch it, and... And it was part of her plot to make me watch it. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that... I also was thinking about, I mean, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is inarguably my favorite Christmas song, um, and it is very sad. I mean, and especially, like, Judy, I think other people's versions of it get less sad, but... The initial version from the film is very, like, pained. Like, Judy Garland is going through all this emotional turmoil. And even though she's saying, you know, have yourself a merry little Christmas, she's, like, clearly, you know, very afraid for the future ahead. Um, And so that made me think about, you know, nostalgia in terms of, like, clearly in that moment, Judy Garland's character you know, is very nostalgic for this life she led has led in St. Louis and is potentially about to lose. Because um, one of the plot lines as well is, is the family going to move to New York? Ah! Um, yeah, so... And then it also struck me, you know, looking up and seeing that... I knew it was made in the 40s, but I didn't realize it was made, like, in 1944. Um, and so then it struck me that, like, a lot of this movie and why it was so popular is probably because people going to see it in theaters saw it as, you know, looking backward on a what they felt was a simpler time. Um, and, you know, as, you know, the country was going through a lot of turmoil, it probably was very comforting um, to see this movie and see... You know, this very, like, upper-middle-class white family who, like, all clearly like each other and are nice to each other and, um, you know, have have problems on a pretty small scale. Um, and I think, I because I had never, like, put that timing together, it hadn't really occurred to me, like, how much that film kind of fits in that niche. Well, and sort of making it relevant to us, the time gap between when the movie was shot and when it was set is the same as the time gap uh, with, like, American Hustle, um, which was set 40 years ago from when it was shot, and, like... So it's, like, in living memory. Mm-hmm. Like, people who watched the film when it came out would have remembered 19, you know, 1903, at least some. Yeah. Um, movie musicals are not super my thing. I watched this. It was fine. I'm not gonna watch it again. <laughs> um... There were some moments that were rather bizarre. The whole um, Devil's Night bit with the kids running around causing trouble seemed very weird. Uh, And, yeah, Judy Garland's a good singer, so. Yeah. I was struck by how many of the songs have a very um, nursery rhyme kind of feel. Mm -hmm. Or, like, like... Like when they sing Skip to My Lou, thing, things like that that feel like jump rope songs or um, kind of playground songs. It reinforced to me that even when we're not talking about nostalgia or reminiscing explicitly in this movie, it's still kind of there as a background theme. Mm-hmm. Was Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas written for yes. this movie? Okay. Yes, it comes from this movie. 
I love that song. It <laughs> makes me a little verklempt. Um, the other thing I thought was kind of interesting was, and and this this is related to Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, is there's kind of a feeling of like being almost feeling nostalgic in advance almost like thinking about the future when you'll be reminiscing about the good times that we're having now where you're not you're not Mm -hmm. thinking about the past you're thinking about how you will be thinking about the past in the future which i thought was very interesting yeah like (laughs) how, how you'll be thinking about the present in the future yeah yeah like in the future, we'll be thinking about now and thinking about how good now was. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, can you be nostalgic for the present? The present? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I think, like, yeah, there are all these moments of, like, the characters kind of savoring, um, savoring, like, triumphs. Like, I love that moment when Judy Garland thinks that the guy she is in love with, like, because her little sister is kind of a rapscallion and lies to her and tells her that her basically boyfriend, like, punched her. Well, no, he didn't. Uh, but Judy Garland thinks he does. He did. So she runs over and, like, kind of beats him up <laughs> or tries to and, like, screams at him and, like, defends her sister. And then she comes back and she's just, like, kind of chest puffed, like, huh, I got him, I got him good, blah, 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 blah. And I just love, like, that moment of her, like, savoring that joy on her face of like I stood up for my sister like this is yeah like and then you know it comes to late like no actually like he saved her um and her face just like deflates and she's just like oh but I love that moment where you just see like and they shoot her from the side and sorry I'm like getting into this one specific moment so much but I love it and they just like shoot her from the side and she's just glowing she's just like radiant but yeah I just like love that moment where she's like so invested in this moment and then oh wait thinking about um the idea of being like nostalgic for the present I think that works in this because it's set in the viewers past like the I, I don't think you could get away with the nostalgia for the present idea if it were set, um, you know, in 1944 or mm-hmm. in 2019 um, as well. Like, because the people watching this know how the story, like, continues in a way, like the story of, of society, mm-hmm. you can do that in a much more potent way. I mean, it's the same reason everyone loves Stranger Things, right? Like... Because Stranger Things reminds you of your childhood, and it's all these things you used to be excited about. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things I want to kind of get into is, like, Meet Me in St. Louis, and we're we're going to talk about this more when we get to Pleasantville also, I think, is about, like, it has... It talks about nostalgia for the characters' pasts, but also is in and of itself a nostalgic view of this time period. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a very rosy colored glasses look at um, the 1910s, you said, Marin, is 1903. what it said? 1903. So, like, 
for the people who are watching it in 1945, it gives them a chance to think about like this time 40 years ago and whether they were around or not then it's like, Oh, wasn't it so lovely? You know, I'm mm-hmm. sure there's a, there's a measure of like, you know, the, the simple, I mean, it, it's, it's the same thing that we always get when we're talking about like the good old days or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're talking about nostalgia within the movie, but then also the movie itself is a very nostalgic view of, the oh, time yeah. period that it's being set in. Yeah. Um, speaking of Pleasantville, that seems like a good segue to begin talking about Pleasantville, unless anyone has final thoughts specifically on Nightmare in St. Louis. Pleasantville is a movie that came out in 1998 that I love very, very much. Uh, it stars Tobey Maguire and baby Reese Witherspoon <clears throat> as siblings. Um... Tobey Maguire is kind of a loner. Uh, well, they're both in high school. And Tobey Maguire is kind of a loner, kind of an outcast. He's obsessed with this 1950s sitcom called Pleasantville, which is a very Leave it to Beaver, um, white picket fence, black and white. Um, you know, it Basically, it wraps up all of those uh, nuclear family sitcom type tropes that we are all familiar with into one big... Uh, cliched package mm-hmm. and his sister uh, played by Reese Witherspoon is more of a party girl and through a series of shenanigans the two of them get trapped inside the world of this sitcom uh, black and white lighting and all um, and from there the movie follows the two of them as they're trying to fit at first they're trying to figure out how to get home And then once they and their modern sensibilities start making changes to the landscape of this very rigid 1950s story, things start kind of exploding in bursts of color as they change the the landscape of the show kind of irrevocably. Um, Had you guys seen it before? Yes. I saw it, okay. <clears throat> like, it came out in, what, 98? I probably saw it in middle school and had not seen it since. Um, and I liked it a lot more this time around than I remembered liking it uh, back then when I first saw it. Yeah, one of the things, and the reason I wanted to talk about it for this episode, is one of the things that I love about it is that it directly calls into question the value of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Because... Reese Reese Witherspoon's character is just like, well, I'm going to, you know, as long as we're stuck here, I'm going to make my own fun. Um, and meanwhile, Tobey Maguire is like, we can't make any waves while we try and figure out how to get home. Um, but as she starts, like, introducing people to making out and, you know, like, talking about stuff that is more buttoned up and basically being a more relaxed like open person mm-hmm. um and starts stuff starts exploding into color and then we all get to f- we all get to ask ourselves or we all get to interrogate this idea of like how good were things when no one talked about anything and everyone was so tightly buttoned up and everything looked very like pleasant and happy and simple but was it 
like it it directly interrogates this idea of the value of preserving this like crystalline vision of you know how how good were things i loved the like the the choice of the word pleasant as the adjective for the town the show everything i think was perfect because um pleasant feels so positive but it's also very like it's blandly positive and also requires a lot of oppression oppression like you know like in the interest of not causing any unpleasantness nothing like no serious ideas can be grappled with um i also like that it asks us you know what does it cost when we want to talk about like i'm going to use the 50s as as the example in this because that's what i think the movie is talking about but like when we want to talk about when things were simpler and easier what does it cost us to ignore the problems and the issues and the complexities that were part of people's actual lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would love to see this movie remade. I think because it's still you know for all of the the boundary pushing that happens inside the movie, it's still very straight. It's still very white, and I think that there are a lot more. I think it could be pushed a lot further now if somebody wanted to remake it twenty. 20 years later. Oh, God. I don't think we would have the same nostalgia for the 70s that we would the 50s. No. Oh, no. I mean, like, still still remaking it with that 50s setting just... Mm. Oh, okay. Bring like, in a, a 2020 because... sensibility instead of a 2000 sensibility. Yeah, because I, I think that there are questions that they could have also been asking about race and sexuality that I don't think they kind of get into it with sexuality, but again, it's still very straight and very white. And like, there the is not 50s... a single person of color in the movie. Yes. And I, I don't know that I don't think that that's particularly accurate to the way that the fifties actually were. And I think that they could push that bound that, um, that rigid boundary a little further. Um, and Martha, that's interesting to think about considering this week another movie from that same couple of years, um, What Women Want, just had a remake come out, um, which Amelia I have not seen yet, but there does seem to be a cultural like moment for revisiting. Well, especially because that remake, um, is it Taraji? I think it's Taraji P. Henson. Uh-huh. So it's it's gender flipped. Yes. Which I love. Um and I'm actually really interested to see how far they push you know this idea of a woman getting to hear what men are thinking because that idea I don't want to hear what men are thinking. <laughs> I'm afraid of what men are thinking. Yeah, that that's probably the correct uh, angle. Uh, um yeah, the I'll other be very thing curious is, to yeah, the other thing that this movie does with Tobey Maguire is because he's he's the one who's like obsessed with this show, and for him it's a very comforting thing. Like it's his escape. He and Reese Witherspoon have sort of a broken home situation, and she they don't get along. Um, and he has this this sort of comfort food type show that he gets to escape into. 
that through that once he's like trapped in it and gets to see how you know as it as it kind of dismantles it's dismantling his nostalgia for the setting i think mm-hmm. but in a good way yes. if that makes sense like it's it's hmm. it's dismantling the nostalgia for reality and showing how even though how even though reality is so much messier it can also be so much more beautiful one like thing the, the, this yeah go ahead i was just gonna say the scene at the courtroom at the very end when he's forcing the the mayor to confront how much better things can be when when we acknowledge the warts and all is you know such a good scene <laughs> i i honestly i think that the last 10 to 15 minutes of the movie is where it stumbles a little bit and they have to figure out how to wrap it up um we were uh, talking for a while about like what is the thing that causes people to change like to become colorful because like each character has sort of a different um point and one thing I, i was thinking about is that it seems like change is one of the ways like you know you were this now you are thinking this or feeling this or whatever um which is different and i think the change is interesting in the context of nostalgia because when we look back at things that we are personally nostalgic about we have changed quite a lot as people frequently since those events happened so we have both the the distance of time and also the fact that like we ourselves might be different people um and i i think that that's like relevant with toby Maguire, where he um you know he doesn't change until but it, like he punches a guy, right? Like defending his mom, that's what causes him to get color. So like Yes. That... I'm gonna I'm gonna quibble with that just a little bit. I don't mm-hmm. think it's just change, I think it's growth. Yes. Okay, great. Be- because I, I think that part of the point is that we've had like everyone's been stuck in time, stuck in this moment. And more than just change, because I don't know, change doesn't feel specific enough because like somebody can you can change horizontally, you can change backwards. Yeah, but it's it's specifically growth, it's specifically moving forward and becoming unstuck, like getting out of the rut of Pleasantville. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, like, I think there are lots of possible interpretations, but that's one that I like a lot, and I, I think that it sort of connects well with the nostalgia idea, because I think that that growth that we all hopefully undergo um, helps create the sense of, like, it was a simpler time than, um, like, insert whatever time you want here. Um, Because we ourselves were, like, I don't want to say simpler, but, you know, things were different because our own lives were different. Well, and because when you're younger, you don't necessarily, like things seem simpler even if they aren't actually because you don't have like the tools to kind of process complexity Mm -hmm. like that yeah which is what you get when you grow yay (laughs) um that seems like a good segue to our third homework unless anyone has any specific thoughts left on pleasantville cool um, my homework was an album uh, by the band The Hold Steady. Uh, the album is Boys and Girls in America, 
which came out in 2006. Um, Hold Steady is a Brooklyn indie rock band, uh, but the singer-songwriter lead, Craig Finn, is from Minneapolis, and uh, all their lyrics are about basically his time in Minneapolis, um, partying, living life, etc. Uh, he was 35 when this album came out, and that feels right because the whole album to me feels like somebody looking back at their early 20s and um, remembering those times then. Um, I was a little hesitant about picking this homework in the first place because it has strong nostalgic resonances for me. Um, I listened to this a lot in college, that's where I got introduced to it. Uh, but I think that the album holds up, even without that, as like an interrogation of nostalgia um, without bringing my own personal nostalgia into it. Take it away, anyone. <laughs> I, know, I know that the, the two of you have very different opinions on it, so... Uh... The whole time I was listening to this album, I wished I had been listening to The Doors. Ooh, wow. Because that is who it reminded me of, only not good. <laughs> In what way? Just, like, the their musicality. Hmm. Um, I don't... This hmm. was... I'm sorry, Pete. This was not an album that I... I did not enjoy listening to this album. Yeah, no, I, I understand. Um, which had nothing to do with the lyrics or the message, and just it was just a sound profile that I did not enjoy. This sound is very um, like Springsteen rock, and if you're not like, like it, that's a, it's classic for many reasons, but also some people don't like it. I don't know that Springsteen would be my first point of comparison. It has, he has that very like talking over music kind of sound, which was big for a while and I just never enjoyed. Oh, yeah. That, that is exactly what I think of when I think of Springsteen. No, Springsteen. So, I mean, and maybe that's because when I'm listening to Springsteen, it's more often you playing live YouTube videos. That's so that is abs so Martha you say that and I'm like yeah that's exactly what I associate with Springsteen um, that's fair but um but I guess I guess my point stands that it's just not a sound that I enjoy yeah um and it is also one that I frankly think other people have done better <laughs> so sometimes I'm i assign sorry. Uh, <laughs> sometimes i assign music homework and it introduces you to a new artist that you like and sometimes that doesn't happen true sometimes we get an echo case and sometimes we get this <laughs> um, i do i do want to sidebar apologize um, listeners, I rickrolled Pete with a Nickelback song in the course of discussing this episode, and that was mean, and I apologize. <laughs> we'll, call, we'll call it even. Talk to me about, I was uh -huh. going to say, Pete, talk to me about your experiences with this album. Um, I'll do that, and then I'll let Marin do the same, because I got her into this band. Um, so, I guess, yeah, I got into this, into the Hold Steady in college from a roommate, um, and I just, like, 
because it has that to me like Springsteen-y vibe um, musically, like in in the sense that it's sort of like you know that classic rock um, sound, uh, and then the lyrics, like the, the poeticism of the lyrics. I'm a sucker for um, songs that tell condensed stories about things. Uh, hence my love of the mountain goats. Um, and this guy kind of has. The Mountain Goats are also not known as, like, being great singers, uh, but instead, like, <laughs> telling convoluted lyrical stories, and this sort of does the same thing in a different sound. Um, so that's sort of where, that was my personal touchstone. Um, in, in terms of, like, nostalgia, the song First Night, what I think is, like, a great example of it, um, the, the line, like, we can't get as high as we got on the first night is sort of, like, a quintessential idea of, like, looking back nostalgically at something that, like, well, <laughs> like, should we be looking back on that nostalgically? Yeah, it was fun. That sounds like a lot of my college experiences. Um, and looking back from, you know, vantage point, like, 15 years or something, you you have much more positive takeaways on it. Although in this song, it's a lot more melancholy. Like, it's it's sad that it can't be as good as it was back then rather than like wistfully remembering. Um, and I think that like melancholy looking back is in a lot of the songs here. Like, well, and we were talking before the episode about the contradiction of he is very nostalgic for these things he knows were bad for him or bad for the people in the songs. Like, especially the song, the chill out tent is what made me think about this. We're like, this is not a good situation. Like, these are people, you know, who are having essentially a medical crisis. And so there, on one hand, is a, oh, man, we used to have so much fun. And on the other hand is a, this was not good. Yeah, like, I, this was not good for us. The wistful imagery of making out in the chill-out tent, uh, but also being like, yeah, because you guys just OD'd and had to have, like, activated charcoal in your system. Like, not great. Yeah. So I think there's this inherent contradiction, which I really enjoy. Um, Martin, you were, you were kind of pushing me to assign this album. Um, yeah, and I mean, and I, I know you think it's just because of my associations with Minnesota. False. Um, and I will, I will tell the story of Martin discovering this album. Um, but no, I, I think every song in there is a story about... Here are these times we had 15, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. And I I think they do ring very nostalgic um, in that, you know, it's all about his experiences as a young adult. And I feel like, you know, we all have the same stories. Um, I, one of my friends and I were recalling a, a story from... A Friday night we went out in our first year teaching and it made me think of this album because it was kind of that similar like, whoa, we like used to, you know, we used to go out a lot. <laughs> and um, so it, it made me think of that, which is why when we came up with this theme, I was I pushed Pete to assign this album because um, I think, you know, as you grow up and, you know, the closer you know, I'm about to turn 30 in just over a month, and I think as you, as I've grown older, the more this album has rang true for me in terms of, you know, thinking back on, you know, my first few years out of college, because, 
yeah, there were, I mean, not quite to the level of Craig Finn and his friends, but there is definitely, you know, the older you get, the more there's like, oh, yeah, we used to, like, do all these things that were kind of crazy. Um, One thing that sets the tone of this, I think, is opening with a reference to Jack Kerouac, um, which is the quintessential early 20s dude uh, writing thing. So I I think it sort of helps... uh, set that mood very quickly by having a reference to Saul Paradise right off the get-go. Well, and then telling the story of John Berryman, which I did not know this at all, um, that he did uh, commit suicide in Minneapolis. And um, I remember the first time, well, I guess now we can launch into the story of Marin being, listening to this album. Um, It Pete and I just started dating, and I think you just had it on in the background, and I think it was that song, and I remember him saying, um, at the end of that song, like, these Twin Cities kisses, and I was like, oh, okay, he's talking about Minneapolis, and then a few songs later, you know, there's that reference to, like, take Nicolette out to the ocean, take Penev out to the 494, and I remember just stopping in my tracks and being like, wait a minute. Those are real places. That is a real thing. And I remember you being like, wait, what? Like, there's actually a Nicolette Avenue. There's actually a Hennepin Avenue. There's actually Lindale. And the first time we went to the Twin Cities, I remember um, we were waiting for a bus on Hennepin Avenue. And then that turned into Lindale Avenue. And I remember you just, like, your eyes got a little wide. And (laughs) wait. We're actually on Hennepin Avenue. <laughs> I, I think I took a selfie of the street sign and sent it to uh, some of my college friends. Yeah. Nerd. So, yep. Yep. I mean, sorry, I bring that up because I think, like, it gives it an authenticity. And, like, even as even if I weren't someone who were who was very familiar with Minneapolis, like, he, he very much, like, grounds it in the geography, grounds it in um, place and also time. Um so I think that's part of like what gives it that narrative, which I think is part of what makes it feel so nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of my failure to connect with it, I think, is because my early to mid-20s are not really a time period that I feel particularly nostalgic about. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot in here that I'm just like, I was a... I mm, I struggle. <laughs> oh, Martha, I get like, that. I have the same thing yeah. with high school. Like, I was not a very happy high schooler. I did not have a happy high school experience. So I totally understand that. So sometimes so, I... So, like, I, I the value the time that I spent in my early to mid-20s while also being glad that I escaped... <laughs> Right. The way that I was, the way that I, like, I grew out of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, I I think that's a good discussion of the Hold Steady's album, uh, unless there's any final thoughts before we dive into the discussion questions to sort of wrap them all together. Yeah. I think one that we have touched on uh not when we haven't touched on is who does the nostalgia serve um and i think it's it's interestingly different for all three um i think meet me in st louis is very clearly serving its audience um and i think it, it wants its audience to 
you know, feel comforted. Um, whereas Boys and Girls America, the nostalgia is very clearly for Craig Finn. Like, he is very clearly, like, barring his, you know, early 20s as a personal growth. Um, and I and I would say in Pleasantville, I feel like the nostalgia is in some ways for the writer-director, but it but it's also, he's using it to confront the audience. Yeah, but... I was going to say... Within the story of Pleasantville, nostalgia almost gets used as a weapon. Yeah. Like, it's it's a tool. And I, I don't know that this directly answers the question that you're asking, Marin. Um, but when I think about, like, who is the nostalgia serving in this story, like, within the story, it's serving the people who want to keep the status quo. Like, they're using that mm-hmm. sense of nostalgia to, like, we want to maintain the way that things have always been because that's familiar and comforting and also the way that we have control over the situation. The, uh, the white dude bowling um, group. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I am not, I'm not sure in terms of audience or creator because I, I feel very much like Pleasantville is coming down on the side of nostalgia. isn't always a good thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I don't know that it can be kind of talked about in who is it, serving yeah i'll i mean i'll reiterate i i think it's it's serving the director to confront us as an audience i think i think he is using it to serve a purpose um and i think his purpose is confrontation um yeah 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 right yeah it's like one pleasantville is about serving the or uh, in st louis is about serving the audience yeah whole city is about serving the creator as a uh uh, exorcism type. Yeah. Thing. Oh, that's a good word for it. Yeah. Uh, although I don't think he is. Uh, and then um, this is, is, I like your idea of weaponized nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think within the story, the nostalgia is serving that the bowling group. Um, but I think as a, as a piece of media, um, it is serving. And, and it's interesting how I, I was reading, and then this is just on the Wikipedia page, but the writer director had a quote about how what he really wanted to do was show how personal repression creates political repression. Um, mm-hmm. So I think he was using that storyline to to serve, like I mean, like you said, as a weapon for um, his message. Um, that kind of makes me think if like. I think we all agree on that sort of angle that nostalgia is serving a lot of different roles here. Um, Pleasantville is the interesting one because, like, looking at the our third discussion question of like how do stories of nostalgia reflect real life attitudes about it? Um, Pleasantville is it felt very timely, even though it came out twenty years yeah. ago, because it's interrogating like exactly the sort of like time period that people who want to make America great again are probably thinking of. Um, And it does a good job sort of like at the surface presenting it as a nice place, but at any Mm -hmm. interrogation of it um, collapses. And the way it shows sort of like mob mentality uh, and how quickly that pleasantness turns vicious um, when those who have power are losing power, it all felt 
very timely. Yeah. The only other movie I can remember kind of having that, and I think we maybe even talked about this after we watched it, um, but it reminded me of um, 9 to 5 in that it, 9 to 5 is a 40-year-old movie. It, it had that same, like, relevance. It has something to say about, you know, our current time. I think audiences in 1998 would have gotten something different than we do here in 2019. Yes. Yeah, I I felt very... It reminded me a lot of the tone policing that happens nowadays. Mm. Like, don't be angry, don't, like, be civil, keep everything... Um, like, keep everything polite because that's the only way to to have discourse. And it's like, no, sometimes you have to get angry. Yeah. Like, sometimes change only happens when you get mad yeah um yeah i i also i um i i put that question down um because i i get so annoyed with people um you know who want to talk about like every time they remake anything from the 80s and people who are like, I, I, this came up in our last episode, so we don't have to spend too much time talking about it. But people are like, you're ruining my childhood. It's like, yeah. no, you just have a very specific feeling about how you remember this, whether that's accurate or not. Mm-hmm. And that accuracy is kind of what I enjoy about how, like, that accuracy, I think, is what Pleasantville is kind of interrogating. Because it's like, you remember it as being this thing that was so wonderful, but was it? Or is it just your memory? Uh white dudes whose childhoods are being ruined and no one else's right well and i think it's interesting to think about that um in a more roundabout way for meet me in st louis because meet me in st louis is being like like we're, was 1903 really that candy coated <laughs> right right yeah well and it's interesting or do the people who are are the people who watching it just want to think about it as being that candy coated I'm, I'm guessing that it coming out in 1944 they were definitely happy to go watch a candy coated version of their past oh uh, for sure yeah yeah and not not think deeply about it well and one interesting thing to think about too is that, uh vincent minnelli actually really had to fight to get that weird halloween scene in there like the producer, which admittedly it's very weird, but I think it's really the only scene that focuses on the younger kids, and I think it it makes the film like a little. It gives the film like a little element of just like, huh? It's like it became a David Lynch film, which I was not expecting. Yeah. So and and but Vincent Minnelli actually had to really fight to get that scene in there. So thinking about it, it would have been even more candy coated. Um, had he not insisted. Yeah, that's a good point. That scene is, like, bizarre and would, like, potentially be scary to a younger kid watching it. Um, or at least, like, intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it does kind of... It it felt jarring to me because it was out of tone a little bit with everything else going on. Mm-hmm. I, I guess this idea also works with the whole steady about, like, reflecting real-life attitudes about it. Like, the people that he's singing and writing about are... Uh, one of the other albums, uh, 
you know, it's like the hood rats a little bit. Um, the like they're partying, but they might be blue collar rather than college kids. Mm-hmm. They might be, um, you know, like people in bar bands, the bartenders, that sort of like group rather than, you know, a kid in a frat house or something. So things are like, it's a little bit harder or edgier than, than what is commonly valorized, I guess, or, or like mm-hmm. what is commonly portrayed. I'm, I'm also like bringing in like other albums of theirs in that analysis though, which is a little bit on. I was going to say, I have no, I, yeah. I have nothing to contribute to that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, and I mean, I think the only song where that really comes to play in Boys and Girls in America is Citrus. um, Because he portrays the bartender as this almost religious figure bringing everyone together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Which, I mean, I I will say it's my favorite song on the album. Um, I really love that song. Yeah. And yeah, so like, hey, barman, I find hope in all the souls you gather. I mean. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all the time we have for today. Um, Marin, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having yes, me. Yes, thank you. Uh, anywhere you want people to be able to find you on the internet. Um, I am <laughs> Sorry, on... that's, do you want people to be uh... able to find you on the internet, and if so, where? <laughs> How do I have to think about it? You pose that such a deep question. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I am I am on the, the Twitter and the Instagrams as um, A Star Danced. Cool. Um, Martha, how about you? Uh, well, I'm no longer in Twitter jail, so you can find me on Twitter at Magical Martha. I was temporarily suspended because I said something mean about turfs and someone got my account suspended for 12 hours. I just read about um, that before recording and also just learned what turfs stood for like two days ago. So, Yeah, I was targeting a hate group. So because Twitter is the way that they are, I'm the one that got punished for it. So, yep. you know, yep. if that if that website wasn't like my heroine of choice, I would have walked away. But yeah. Yeah, mm. we, we use the drugs we use. Um, Twitter is bad, so you and now let me plug my Twitter. <laughs> you can also find me on Instagram, which is a generally happier place. Um, but both places, I'm Magical Martha. Uh, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, where I talk about things, where I get into more detail about um, what Stephen King movies I want Jordan Peele to direct. <laughs> uh, and I think my next issue is going to be a deep dive into my conflicting feelings about the movie Leave No Trace. So if that is of interest to you, you can find that at Martha's Media Minutes on Tiny Letter. Bring it all back around. Did you decide on a uh, Stephen King movie for Jordan Peele? I made a top five list. Cool. Okay. And that's all going to be in the newsletter. Yeah, it was in one of my recent issues from last week. I think it was like Misery, The Shining, Thinner... Um, I think it would be interesting. Because I really, I, I think that the, the concept is strong, but I would really like to see somebody kind of interrogate. I mean, the gypsy curse thing is bad. Yeah. Like, it, it's just, it's just uh, bad. Yeah. Um, and if anybody can sort of closely interrogate the racial implications mm-hmm of that and figure out a way to do it without that kind of grossness, I think Jordan Peele would be a strong contender. Yeah. 
Cool. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, uh, P-I-K-O-3000, politics and pop culture. Um, you can find the show on Twitter at D-Y-D-Y-H podcast, and you can find us on Facebook by searching for Did You Do Your Homework? You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Drop us a line with suggestions, feedback, desire to be a guest, uh, disagreements, anything else you want to let us know about. Um, you already listened to this podcast, so you know where to find us, but please rate and review us. That is how the algorithm gremlins uh, bring us to other people's ears and would really help the show out quite a bit. So if you have liked what you've been hearing, please rate and review us. Uh, and also, as always, tell your friends. Next episode, which is going to be coming out in one week. Uh, this was a bit of a hiccup week where, uh, because of sickness intervening, uh, we would have released last week. We instead released that short little discussion about uh, His Dark Materials. Um, so we've got this episode out this week. And next week, we are going to be talking about um, true crime in pop true culture. Crime. I think that's where we ended as the thematic title. Um, or like pop culture reactions to true crime. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, but yeah. So we, we sort of developed these homeworks by committee and intentionally are trying to cast a very wide net, um, sort of looking at a lot of ways that the true crime genre has been... Um, either portrayed or interacted with. So, Martha, what are you assigning? Uh, I am assigning what is commonly thought of as the originator, not of true crime, because that's been around forever, but of the true crime presented in a novel format, which is the novel, or which is the book In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. I'm really looking forward to reading this because I haven't, and I've always wanted to. So having a reason to do it is good. Um, follow it up. This this would be your extra credit, Pete, but follow it up by watching Capote with Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. Which I've also never seen and also have wanted to see. It's incredible. Yeah. And I'll just be sad the whole time because of Philip Seymour Hoffman. I know. Um, for Total Whiplash, I am assigning uh, The Onions podcast, A Very Fatal Murder, which is a parody satire of all the various true crime podcasts that exploded in the wake of Serial. Um, it is The Onion, so you know what you're going to be getting out of that one. Um, joining uh, us as our, our third... Oh. Yep, no, go for it. I was just going to say, uh, joining us uh, is return guest Sarah Caputo, who we're very excited to have back, and who is assigning the film Zodiac. Yes. Which is a fictionalized version of uh, the invest or a fictionalized look at the hunt for the Zodiac Killer, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, and directed by David, David Fincher? Fincher. Yes. Yes. Also, Robert Downey Jr. is in it. It's a good one. That I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, that is all we have. You have only one week to do all these homework assignments, so get reading In Cold Blood right now. Uh, and Fast, with... it's only 350 pages. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's written in a quick manner, right? Hopefully, that's what I'm banking on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and with that, class dismissed. <laughs>